You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Section 230, front and centre, as the Supreme Court hears arguments on the Internet's critical law. We'll bring you the latest from the courtroom. And Meta taking cues from Twitter as the Facebook parent plans to ask users to pay for account verification. We'll run you through the details as analysts call the plan a no-brainer. And we'll hear from the Microsoft president, Brad Smith, as the company fights to save its $69 billion Activision deal over in Europe. Let's stick with the Supreme Court. Justices today were expressing concern about opening internet companies to lawsuits from harmful user posts in a ruling that could transform the online world by removing that key legal underpinning, Section 230. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Emily Birnbaum, who's tracking all of the proceedings. Emily, give us the top lines of what the judges were deliberating over in court. So the case in question is called Gonzalez versus Google. Uh, They're trying to figure out if YouTube should be held liable for promoting um, terrorism videos. Um, So it's the act of recommending the videos that the court is really looking at. Overall, Emily, it felt as though some holes were immediately being punched into the arguments coming from the Gonzalez family. Now, this is emotive. This is about the loss of a daughter. This is about Islamic terrorism. But what did they have at issue with the actual legal arguments here? Yeah, we heard a lot of frustration and confusion from the justices right off the bat during the um, almost three-hour three oral arguments today. Um, essentially, the justices said, well, what's the line you're really drawing here? You know, most things on the Internet are recommended to users through algorithms, and they say that the, the Gonzalez family hasn't adequately shown what they're even trying to do to Section 230. Overall, in terms of the arguments coming from big tech, what is its argument at the moment as it stands? We've heard in the past from Mark Zuckerberg saying ways in which perhaps it could be nuanced or updated. We've actually seen what Europe has put in place to be able to tackle, perhaps as the Democrats want to be seen tackled, some of the harassment, hate speech. But what ultimately do you think we're going to come down on a line here? Is 230 going to be brushed aside for the time being at least? 
They're definitely leaving that possibility open. The social media companies say, uh, you know, maybe it's time for Congress to take a look at Section 230, but this is not a good question for the Supreme Court, which is not in the business of, uh, you know, making laws or creating new policies. So um, essentially, Tomorrow, there's going to be a case that revolves around similar issues, whether social media companies can be held liable for aiding and abetting terrorism under federal laws. Um, and it's possible that the court will hear that case, decide the answer is no, that social media companies can't, under this claim, be held liable for aiding and abetting terrorism, and then just scrap the Gonzalez v. Google case altogether. Emily, it's been a busy day. We thank you so much for giving us the legalese around all of it. Emily Van Baum, we thank you. Now, we want to be digging a little bit more. We want to go now to the Chambers of Progress founder and CEO, Adam Kovacovic. Thank you very much indeed for talking us through, Adam, what you've made of the arguments. Now, I know in many ways the Chamber of Progress, it's aligned centre-left with technology, with the industry. But from your perspective, what at the moment would be wrong with trying to pick apart Section 230 as it stands? Well, I think it's important to differentiate between what Section 230 does, which is really provide a kind of a liability routing mechanism. It means that if I go into Facebook and I say, Bob's a crook, Bob can sue me for defamation, but he can't sue Facebook. And the reason why we have Section 230 is to ensure that Facebook can continue to operate and allow those user comments. But that's not really the heart of what was being considered today. What's being considered today is when you go on to say Spotify and a song is recommended or you put something in your Amazon shopping cart and another product is recommended, or if you go to Google search results and you get those recommendations, do those recommendations algorithmically driven, do those have 230 protection? That's really what the court was grappling with today. And I think there was a lot of discussion about whether it's possible to separate those algorithmic recommendations from the content itself and from the value that those services provide to consumers in the first place. Adam, the Chamber of Progress is, is essentially a trade group, right? And I think it's worth pointing out that you represent the technology companies. I would say that's fair. But one of the things I continually hear out here in Silicon Valley, at least, is actually Section 230 protects the user. And that doesn't seem to be a point of consideration right now. I think that's absolutely right. And actually, even I would rewind a step, which is that I think that the fact is if two, Section 230 were reformed, the reality is that the big companies, the Googles and the Facebooks, would probably be okay because they have armies of lawyers. They could, you know, tie up these cases in litigation. It's a lot of times the small services. You know, Clubhouse emerged on the scene during the pandemic. And Section 230 is really critical for a site like that because it can start providing user-generated content and have not have to worry about liability protection. That is a point that was made in court today. But I agree with you, it also protects the users. And I think this is not well misunderstood because Section 230 becomes almost a political football, particularly with respect to Democrats right. and Republicans, using it as a little bit of a tool. But if you got rid of that liability protection, I think you would give you would force platforms to choose between being, say, Disneyland, right, which is sort of a sanitized environment where nothing was allowed, or a wasteland where services were disincentivized to look for that content. And that was also a point that came up in court today. I think one of the justices made the point that the, the panel of justices are not the, the sort of definitive experts on the internet and that that comment elicited a laugh from those in attendance. You represent the tech companies. If the, is it the Supreme Court that should be considering this? Is it even the right place to have this conversation? 
I have to say, I, I and I think a lot of others went in today pretty nervous about why the Supreme Court would be taking this case, whether it was a sign that they were prepared to blow up Section 230. Walking out of the arguments, frankly, I think what I heard was a lot of acknowledgement from justices about the benefits of Section 230 for the economy, for user-generated content platforms, for consumers. And so I don't think that's as likely now as I, you know, as I was worried about um, at the beginning of the day. Mm. It's, there's still a possibility that they could say, well, okay, maybe certain types of content recommendations don't have as much protection. And I do think that could have downstream stakes, not just for the big companies, but for small companies and for consumers as well. Certain types like what, Adam? Well, sir, as, as I said, I, I think people, Section 230 is not even, is it, one of the things that it's, it's a pro-competition law, right? Because it, again, it allows new um, social networks mm -hmm. to emerge, right? And not have to have the armies of lawyers uh, like Facebook and Google do. That's really important. But I also think that the fact that this, the issue here was about algorithmic recommendations. And what you saw the justices grappling with was, it's really hard to look at a service like Google Search and say, like, okay, it's all algorithmic recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things there was a lot of discussion about was neutrality. There's a there's a case where there was a statement a statement of applied neutrality. But even Justice Gorsuch, who would be someone who's somewhat critical of Section 230, said, you know, when I really think about it, no algorithm is neutral. All algorithms are trying to highlight and privilege certain types of content, maybe relevant content, maybe high quality content, and so it's really hard to say that there should be any kind of neutrality test applied to the algorithms. And I think it was really interesting to see the Supreme Court kind of grapple real time yeah. with a lot of these uh, concepts. I mean, push us towards tomorrow because then it's Twitter's time in the spotlight. And of course, that is more around how broadly you can read into the anti-terrorism act in some way. This again, sadly involves death by terrorism, but Twitter's role in not taking down some content. Is this some sort of way in which the overall Supreme Court might find an off-ramp in some way? Well, Emily talked about that. A lot of people yeah. have speculated about that, and I think that is a very strong possibility. I think one of the things that's interesting about the, the arguments today around this case were you kind of wondered why the Supreme Court took this case, right? Because, you know, you even had, I think, again, there were a lot of people who thought, well, there were justices like Justice Thomas who were pretty critical and who basically have said in previous decisions, well, bring us more 230 cases because we kind of want to take a fresh look at 230. But by the tenor of their questions, many of those conservative justices were sort of asking, why are we even here? And so I do think it was really an interesting signal of, I think, the justices' interest in looking at 230. They spent three hours on this, as Emily said. Mm -hmm. That's really unusual. It's about twice as long right. as they were supposed to spend. I don't think tomorrow's case will be quite will be, will be quite as lengthy because it's a much narrower statute, this anti-terrorism statute that's a question, and I think a much narrower question. Adam Kovakovich, Chamber of Progress founder and CEO, thank you so much. And Caroline, as we always do, you know, he, Adam raised many of the points we ask our own audiences. Yeah. What should we do with Section 230? This is what our audience in a Twitter poll had to say. Actually, relatively straightforward. Yes, it needs to be amended. But again, one of the key points is it's supposed to protect the user. And how, Ed? We've heard from Zuck before trying to put out ways in which perhaps you could amend it, but it does end up perhaps benefiting some more than others. What's interesting is how, of course, Europe's put into place its own rules. They've got their own Digital Services Act that's coming yeah. out in the beginning of 2024, how fines will be put in place to not tackle hate speech and the like quickly enough. It's so interesting the way in which basically regulators try to grapple with this question yeah. and indeed lawmakers.
Yeah, and I don't hear many alternatives mm. being proposed. We'll continue to track that one. Now, coming up, hurdles facing the $69 billion Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal. We'll bring you the details and our interview with Microsoft President Brad Smith. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I think there's a clear path forward towards regulatory approval. The two agreements that we announced today, I think, really provide two guardrails, if you will. One shows how we can come to terms to make Call of Duty available on other platforms. Today it was Nintendo. In the future it can be Sony. On the other side, the agreement we've done with NVIDIA really shows how we can address the concerns relating to cloud gaming. Microsoft President Brad Smith there. On the path to approval for the almighty $69 billion deal with Activision Blizzard. Joining us and all the intricacies is Dina Bass. And just talk to us, Dina. You're reporting at the moment. There is, of course, Brad Smith over in Europe trying to convince us to why this deal should go through. Really trying to take on the UK, its worries about Call of Duty mainly. But do you think ultimately he's going to be able to persuade? I was going to say, you're talking about the path to approval. It might also be the path to a block. That concern about Call of Duty was flagged by all three of the major regulators uh, that are holding up this deal at this point, the UK, uh, European Union, and USFTC. And, you know, one of the questions for Microsoft then, which uh, Brad Smith answered rather definitively, is, well, okay, if you could buy Activision Blizzard and only under condition that you divest Call of Duty or you divest the Activision portion, which owns Call of Duty, would you do it? And we got a a pretty definitive answer from from Mr. Smith. He said, you know, it's, quote, isn't, quote, feasible or realistic to think that one game or one slice of this company can be carved out. So he seemed to be ruling out um, something that was proposed particularly by the UK regulator, uh, which was a structural remedy. He focused instead on behavioral remedies. That's what Microsoft wants. The difference there is there would be promises by Microsoft um, to change certain behavior or not do certain things in order to address concerns rather than a, a divestiture of some part of the acquired company. 
Do you know, there were what Brad Smith called guardrails. He talked about the deals with NVIDIA and with Nintendo. What did we learn about those deals on Tuesday? Sure. So you'll remember the NVIDIA deal was actually announced on the eve of Microsoft going in to meet with the FTC in an attempt, I would imagine, to convince the FTC that Microsoft did not want to make Call of Duty exclusive and to assuage those concerns. It, it did not work. The deal is officially signed now. And another deal, which was announced, was to give um, you know a bunch of games to NVIDIA's uh, GeForce uh, cloud gaming service, which is another one of the concerns that all of these regulators have raised, whether this deal would allow Microsoft to to dominate gaming subscriptions and cloud gaming. So Smith's point was that those deals kind of give you an indication of what Microsoft is thinking around behavioral guardrails. He also, uh, you know, took aim again at Sony, uh, rather theatrically pulling out what he said was the the exact contract that Microsoft had offered Sony to give it 10 years of access to Call of Duty, which, which Sony has not been willing to sign. Dina, all of this, of course, is sort of some sounds of optimism that came from Brad Smith. But ultimately, it feels as though the red line is in place. They will not be buying this unless they can have Call of Duty. That's right. That is that is basically what Smith said. They they do not believe that it is feasible, logical, that there's any way for them to buy, you know, Activision Blizzard, and then sell off to vest Call of Duty. And so, Microsoft will have to look to convince regulators uh, that it can, uh, you know, agree to again these behavioral remedies, these guardrails that Smith talked about, rather than a divestiture. Now, Smith was optimistic in, in an interview that he did with Bloomberg Television earlier uh, about the chances that, and in particular, the chances of convincing the U.S. FTC, uh, which has been a very staunch opponent thus far to this deal and has sued in FTC administrative court. As Smith said that, he, you know, he thought if Microsoft could work things out with Brussels, could work things out with London, they would be okay in Washington, D.C. as well. Hmm. Bloomberg's Dina Bass, thank you so much. Time now for Talking Tech. Let's check out what's going on over in China. E-commerce leader JD.com closed down 11% of the U.S. market close after a media report said it was planning a subsidy campaign to compete against its rival PDD Holdings in the amount of 10 billion yuan. That's about $1.5 billion. Elsewhere, Meituan is expanding into Hong Kong and hiring up to 10,000 people in China's mainland. That according to the Tsingtao Daily, citing sources. The Chinese shopping platform platforms trying to beat back competition from new entrants like ByteDance in the $145 billion Chinese food arena. And finally, two key members of China's most influential scientific body have outlined the country's plan to circumvent U.S. chip sanctions for the first time. The scientists say China should amass a portfolio of patents that govern the next generation of chip making, from novel materials to new techniques which could propel China's chip ambitions while giving the country clout to push back against those U.S. sanctions designed to hamstring its semiconductor sector. Now, let's switch from China to crypto and talk about Coinbase shares. Now higher in after hours, kind of bouncing around. We have been lower when its latest earnings hit. Here with more Bloomberg, Shanali, Basek. Shanali, what jumped out of you from those numbers for Coinbase? Took the market a while to decide what it liked. Yeah, one thing that's really interesting here is you had revenue overall come in above estimates, but you had transaction revenues come in below estimates. That has often been the 
the king in the room when it came to Coinbase trading volumes and fees that they got behind it. But now you do have Coinbase looking to how it's diversifying. That subscription and services revenue in particular is coming in hot. And you have the CFO of Coinbase speaking to Bloomberg separately. We have a live blog on the terminal that is still accounting for a lot of what she said and what the company is saying. That really shows you that subscription and services revenue that includes, by the way, staking, Ed, is starting to yes. come back to a place that can diversify it enough to get it away from the volatility that you were typically worried about with Coinbase. Let's see if the market sticks to that narrative. Staking a story that you've been tracking closely where users basically book a yield on coin deposits. What did Coinbase have to say about staking in particular? A couple things are really important here. They say that their business is not like, for example, the Kraken business that recently settled with the SNC without admitting or uh, denying wrongdoing here. But when you look at Coinbase, and we recently talked to their chief legal officer about this, uh, they say that they're different. I think more important than that, what is material is that the CFO told Bloomberg that in their 10Q, they're not planning on disclosing a new regulatory matter to this effect. And separately, that chief legal officer in a, in a podcast with The Scoop, with Frank Chaparro, had said separately that they did not receive a Wells notice tied to the staking service. So those are some things that are an all clear for Coinbase for now. They still have a regulatory overhang. We had spoken to an analyst on Bloomberg Television earlier that was more concerned about the moat when it came to Coinbase. But again, when you look at the institutional business, their ability to diversify, that is a story that they're leaning on here. Again, shares super volatile after market ed, but so far in the green. Right. Bloomberg, Sonali, Basic, that earnings call kicking off in around five minutes. We'll keep track of those headlines. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. So I want to stick with MetaShares, OK? This is really interesting. News over the weekend. The company's talking about a subscription tier of verification a la Twitter following in the footsteps. And, you know, it's interesting. Shares actually markedly higher at the open on Tuesday on a day where mega cap tech, big tech, social media peers all significantly lower. We kind of fell away, Caro, towards the end of the session, down half percentage point. But broadly, analyst reception to this plan, which came out over the long weekend here in the US was positive, even though, you know, okay, we're down half a percentage point. One note in particular caught my eye, particularly because we have a, such a brilliant guest coming up next, and that's what Bank of America had to say about this. And they say it's intriguing, clearly following on from what Twitter's done with Twitter Blue, but it's this last line, the point that really I'm seizing on, Caroline, audience size could be limited by the number of creators and influencers on Meta's platforms. You and I have been talking for weeks now about how important the creator and the influencer is on platforms like Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, becoming kind of a powerhouse in that respect. And the analyst nervousness is actually on the core Facebook product. For example, it might not be there. Yeah, I wonder how we square that circle of hooking in more content creators, getting them to pay up, it going straight to the bottom line. But ultimately, how much does this max out at? Let's ask a veteran of the startup world, Lauren Schnipper. He ran creator partnerships for Facebook for more than four years, currently hosts Creator Upload Podcast. So my immediate reaction when I saw this was, oh, I wonder how all the influencers and creators who already have a blue check mark are going to feel about this. But what do you think the reaction is from the creator community. Well, as I understand it, they're not going to lose it and they don't have to pay for it if they already have it. So I think that they're fine with it right now. But I think in general, the thing that um, 
what, what people aren't really focusing on as much is the what you're going to get for that uh, the, for that subscription other than the blue check mark, which is customer service. Mm. And I can tell you that this is a huge issue, even if you're a managed partner at Facebook or Instagram. Just the level of sort of transparency and how you get things fixed is incredibly difficult. And I think this is a huge opportunity because you're getting some customer service and a live chat. There's never been that opportunity before. So for creators and otherwise, I actually think this is a huge opportunity at not a huge price point. And I think it's a welcome change. I think people have been looking for a way to get answers and this is a way in. And also, what does the blue check mark even mean anymore, right? Like it's, mm. it's sort of devoid of all meaning. Certainly when I was there, the criteria for getting one was ever evolving as, you know, when I got there, you had to be on very specific, kind of databases like an IMDB or a Wikipedia. And there were no YouTubers on Wikipedia at the time. So we had to expand that. So it's ever evolving. And honestly, I feel like, again, it's sort of lost all meaning. So I feel like this now gives me something very tangible for that. And I, I for one, like it. I'm really happy for it. And I think it will be a welcome change. So it gives something to the creator. What about the content consumer because in some ways the blue check mark for them was meant to be authenticity clearly and perhaps with this customer care and with this level of diligence you'll definitely get that but also sort mm -hmm. of a, a mark of of creative excellence in some way do you think that that is any is that vaguely lost we have different ranks of, of who gets it and, and what about companies I, as well I, I don't think that it has I think it has meant all everything and nothing for so long I think if you look at the people and this was even when I was there and I haven't been there for several years the people some people that got it and did it, there was no rhyme or reason for it. You'd have people with like huge followings that couldn't get in, verified. And then those without big followings could, it just didn't really make any sense. So for me, and, and then of course, all the platforms kind of did their version of it and it meant something slash nothing for them. So I, I don't know. I think this, this gives me some real meaning. And I think that generally speaking across social, we should be focused on verified mm. profiles, you know, and I think everybody's talking about bots. Well, how do you get rid of that? This is a way to get rid of that. You know, you verify your identity. And I also want to speak to like, a, a, for a while now, you know, Facebook, if you get hacked or something, they're asking for a government issued ID. And a lot of folks have been very wary to give Facebook that, you know, information for obvious reasons. But for some reason, when you put sort of a little bit of friction and a paywall in front of it, and then, then require a government ID, I, I think that people are going to be more willing to work with Facebook as a platform. And it it just engenders more trust because you feel like, okay, well, I'm paying for something. I'm going to get something for this. I'm going to get my blue check mark. I'm going to get my customer service, et cetera. So I, I don't know. I think this is a welcome change and also a huge pivot. When I was at Facebook, I can distinctly remember Mark Zuckerberg sort of laughing at the idea that Facebook would ever charge for anything because this was before the time when we all sort of realized that we were being, we were paying in our data, right? Mm -hmm. This is pre-Cambridge Analytica. Right. So we've all been paying for a long time, to be honest. And now it's just like, it's not that much less than 20 bucks a month and I get all these services. I, I'm not I'm not mad at it. Lauren, let's jump in then to timing. You were at Facebook as it was then known, 2014 to 2019. Correct. Why is this happening now? This is just a response from Meta to direct competition from the likes of Twitter and TikTok, etc. I mean, I think there's there's several reasons, right? Like, I think they've been dealing. They think there's there's the bot issue that they're trying to and they're trying to focus on, you know, verifying identity, and they're figuring out a way to do that. And and they're. I think this is really a response to, and almost acknowledging the fact that we have been paying for these services with our personal data. So now this is another way to do it, and this is also something they've been trying to solve for a long time in terms of propping up some sort of customer service. So I think there's a lot of 
of things going on and, and the reasons behind this. And and I will also say that I don't see this as a huge cash cow for Facebook. Like, I don't I don't imagine this as some huge, certainly right. not for quite a while. So I don't think that that's the reason behind it. I think that they know that this is they are trying to get back in the good graces of folks. And I think that this is a way of them being able to provide tangible services and people can see an actual benefit from it. And they will feel there's a real exchange. And not to mention the fact that creators who I consider small businesses and, real, you know, sort of brick and mortar small businesses can suffer real sort of devastation with their businesses if their Facebook gets hacked or their Instagram gets hacked. And this is a way, I mean, I still get, I haven't been at Facebook since 2019, I still get friends of friends, you know, DMing me when they get hacked and it's devastating. And so this is a way to really figure out a way around that. And I, I think that they know it's time, it's too big. They need a real sort of provided services for folks to help with these situations. On your point on the sort of sales boost, Bloomberg Intelligent Analysts put out a note earlier saying that it could add two to three billion dollars annually in sales. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, as you say, that's not a great deal. Focus on the creators there. I mean, it's huge, but it's not huge, right? (laughs) We started this segment, though, Lauren, talking about how YouTube has the creators, TikTok has the creators. Historically, Meta is not. How do they get them on board? Well, I, Facebook is like, so I work at a company, I'm, I'm the host of a podcast, but I also am the VP of corporate development at a company called Jelly Smack. And one of the primary things that we do is take creators from um, YouTube and then we move them over to Facebook and other platforms. There's actually a huge creator community on Facebook. It's just a little bit under the radar and it's frankly just not as cool as other platforms, but there's real creators making real money on that platform today. So I think it, it wants to be known, to your point, more as like a place where creators kind of start their career years. It's not that yet. So I think this is one way to potentially help creators get in and understand why they should, you know, because they'll be able to get sort of services from Facebook. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that this is going to be I think it's more going to be if you're already on Facebook. I don't know if this is going to be a way for that creators are going to sort of flock to the platform as a result of this, um, because it's verification is going to mean something very different now. It's just going to be verifying your identity. But I think it's yeah. going to be, I don't know, I think it's going to be adopted widely. Here's to customer services. Lauren I'm Schnepper. telling you. Thank you. <laughs> I hear you. Jelly Smack, VP of Corporate Development, and of course, yes. the co-host and Creator Upload podcast. Great insight. We thank you so much. Meanwhile, coming up, well, how is generative AI impacting our very own future? and OpenAI's role in kicking off the hype. That's next. And Ed, you've got some more shares to watch out for. Yeah, just a quick check on Palo Alto Networks, up more than 7% in after hours. Strong beat on revenue uh, in extended trading, really driving those shares. I think what we're looking at there is actually the performance during uh, Tuesday's session. But take my word for it, we're up more than 7% in after hours and strong bookings as well. We'll continue to track that as the call's ongoing. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. 
Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. OpenAI deserves a ton of credit for taking what happened with transformers and large language models and taking it out of the research labs of these big tech companies. They're really at the front lines of bringing these technology to lots of application developers and users. So to give OpenAI credit, they, when they released ChatGPT, they were very careful to put in place safeguards to prevent certain types of toxic or harmful content um, or dangerous content from being um, shared. The timing and the, the press that's received about OpenAI, I think, is actually great. Um, it actually it highlights the opportunity that's out there. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 6 to 12 months we have models that are actually capable of truthfulness. I think every company is going to be an AI company, and everything we do at work and how we live is going to be transformed by AI. AI is probably the most important next-generation technology of, of this decade. A lot of optimism, a lot of grand speak there from our recent guests talking about the impact of open AI on the quick rise of generative AI in just the recent months and about the very impact of artificial intelligence on our lives moving forward. And that's just one of the topics on which a new Bloomberg original series makes a deep dive. It's the future with Hannah Fry, looking at breakthroughs across themes such as AI, but also crypto, climate, chemistry, ethics, you name it. It premieres tomorrow. And we're very pleased to say, therefore, that Bloomberg Originals host and University College London Professor Hannah Fry joins us now for more. And Hannah, I mean, deep knowledge of mathematics, mm. someone who's passion for learning and for teaching. But you've also been keeping a keen eye on some of the extraordinary hurrah around artificial intelligence, oh, yeah. which, you know, you're a fellow Brit, a deep mind. That was a lot of that being baked over there in the UK. What do you make of the hype and the reality? I think in a lot of ways, I mean, these large language models have been around. For, for quite some time and I think that uh, this current generation that we have now are a step forward but I wouldn't say that they're this seismic shift in quite the way that they appear to be in, in public perception. The big difference of course is that now the public has access to them in a way that they didn't before. So I think it's really that the public is kind of catching up with where things stand but I think that with that, with the, the impressiveness of this, this new generation, I think that there is also maybe a sort of false impression that these algorithms are capable of doing things that they're perhaps not quite demonstrating. You know, for instance, I still don't think that we are in a world where any artificial intelligence anywhere has ever demonstrated a conceptual understanding of what it was creating. Hmm. Hannah, big Wednesday night ahead. We'll get into the details of the show in just a second. But I'm looking across the six episodes, right? And it's not just simply a look at AI. You're looking at, for example, technology and AI 
within social inclusion, mm. you go global around the world. Give us some of what we can expect in yeah, the six really, episodes to come. I really wanted this whole series to be about not just technology in and of itself in isolation, but really about the impact of technology on society. So as you say, one of the episodes is about uh, technology for social inclusion, the idea that there are new creations that might be able to help uh, people with disabilities to combat um, the way that some groups end up being uh, marginalised. So we go, there's a, a place around the corner from here um, in Brooklyn where they are building the most beautiful, elegant, prosthetic limbs that uh, can be controlled by your mind, essentially. Um, or a, a company in London that are creating these glasses that, that can subtitle conversations as they happen so that people who are deaf or hard of hearing might be able to, uh, to use that kind of technology. But I think it's not just the series, it's not just about listing all the new technologies that are coming, it's really thinking about their impact. Because in that episode, I also uh, go to talk to um, some disability rights campaigners and ask them about how they feel about these new silver bullets. And their response really is, uh, actually, can we just have ramps, you know, like yes. actually we'd like braille and maybe like a carpet that leads up to the reception desk of buildings. It's all very well and good to get excited about these new kind of fangled technologies, but really we have the technology already that can really impact on people's lives and we're la what we're lacking is the sort of societal will to, to implement it. Well said. Well, I can't wait to tune in. The first one, the 150-year life, so delving deep on longevity. Joy to have her here with us, of course, Bloomberg Originals host and University College London professor Hannah Fry. We thank and don't forget to catch the premiere. It's actually at 10.30 p.m. New York time, right here on Bloomberg TV. Or you can just go ahead and stream it too, Ed, hey? Like tech, hey? Yeah, big night, my night sorted. Let's stick with AI, though, and bring in James Clift, CEO of Durable, which is an AI website builder and service business software name. And I've been excited to have you on, James. I've been tracking what Durable's up to. Um, but the, the starting point here is everything we've just talked about. This moment in AI is huge. And I, I'd just like to ask you, what's that experience been like for your company in recent weeks and months? Has interest kind of built up? Yeah, it's been incredible. In my 15 years of building things on the internet, this is definitely the fastest growth company I've ever been a, been a part of. It's certainly a wave, it's a trend. People are so excited about this technology and just the use cases that we're seeing are just incredibly exciting. And yeah, really, really stoked to uh, see the impact of, of AI in society, but actually seeing real users in real life using this, it's, it's been incredible. This is a simplistic way of looking at your technology, but basically a quick way of developing a website using AI. What are some of the tools that your company uses, some of the underlying technologies to make that happen? Yeah, so we, we had our own in-house website builder, um, and then we layered on this whole AI engine. So we're using OpenAI to generate the copy um, with our own prompt engine. We're picking images from uh, a free stock photo archive. So really just using AI on top of our own technology layer to build this brand new user experience. James, let's get to some of the, the more clickbaity part of, well, our media that we know and love that we're part of. But there is an element going on of people stress test generative AI, particularly, of course, the chat GPT part of it. How, what are you making of some of the coverage? What are you making about its uh, Achilles heels, some of the worries that we have, the way in which we seem to be setting it completely bonkers? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a new technology, it's exciting. There's always going to be a period of, there's going to be a lot more headlines coming out for sure. I think as you have this brand new technology and really smart people trying to break the technology, you're going to see a lot of breaking points. 
Um, I think the ethics are something to really consider. But the reality of AI right now, it's it's human input, right? So you have a human being that is putting a prompt in, they're training the AI. Um, I think where it gets really interesting in the future is this idea of artificial general intelligence when the AI is thinking for itself. I think we're about 100 years out from that, but that's the, f- the future that we really have to be thinking about. And I think a lot of smart people are, um, are really um, working through the ethics here. James Clift, wish we had longer. Thank you so much, Durable CEO there. We thank him. It's a memoir of grief, of adversity, and of a drive to thrive. The Urgent Life, My Story of Love, Loss, and Survival, is written by Bozma St. John, one of the most well-known C-suite executives across Silicon Valley in recent years, leading marketing at giants like Netflix, Uber, Apple. How can people live life to their fullest in the face of adversity? And how can companies like the ones that she worked for enable that? We welcome to discuss a little bit more. Bozma St. John. Boz, it's great to have some time with you. You tell stories. You've been telling stories all your life for businesses. You've also been telling stories to help reduce bias. I think of Share the Mic Now when it comes to Instagram and other platforms. What is it in your story that you want to share? Oh, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, you, you're right. I've been sharing stories, telling stories, narratives for my entire career. And I feel like right now at this moment in time, you know, we've all been suffering some sort of loss over the last three years at the very least, right? If not longer, Um, loss of identity, loss of comfort, loss of sometimes loved ones. Um, And we are still not able to necessarily come all the way clean about it, you know, to bring it into a public eye. We feel ashamed. We need to hide it. We need to uh, hide our suffering and our disquiet. And I think it's about time for us to start saying those types of things out loud. You know, we're whole human beings. We're not just professional side. We're also the personal side. And so how do we bring both of those to really bring the whole person? Your story is one of loss with Peter, your husband who died of cancer. Of course, you've grieved loss of children and you've sought previous loved ones. I think of other executives, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg comes to light, of someone who shared the story of loss and trying to bring a full self to work. Talk to us about all the companies that you've worked at, big technology companies, allowing that, that you can be your full self in whatever way that is, and that sometimes a drive to survive and a drive to thrive can be a drive for happiness too, not just a general desire to get ever higher. Yes, it's so true. You know, the companies that I've worked for and many that are in tech, you know, there's such high pressure environments. You know, you're moving so fast. You have to think ahead, two steps, three steps, four steps ahead. And what happens if you are dealing with something that's very present? You know, something that is dragging you down. Grief has a way of pulling you into the past. It doesn't allow you to dream of the future. So how could you possibly think about the next thing that's coming if you are grieving? You know, I think that we have to open space for that. And for me, it has felt that in this present time, there's been more conversation around mental health. There's been more conversation around how we can be whole human beings. But there's still a lot of, ooh, what I would say, like taboo, you know, around that. And I think it's time for us to knock that down, really, and begin to have more open dialogue so that we understand the fullness of our employees, our, co- our colleagues. For certain, it will be a better working environment if we right. allow the space they need. 
Bozma, you were CMO at Netflix for a time, and I wondered if you could reflect on, on some decisions that Netflix had made that perhaps weren't uh, something received positively by everyone, namely the decision to charge for password sharing and add in an ad-supported tiers. You know, those were two really profound moments for, for Netflix's offering. How do you assess how they handled that? Well, look, I think storytelling is very tough. <laughs> you know, there's so much that happens in corporate boardrooms to make decisions that you believe are best for all customers. You know, and even though I wasn't part of the decision to make uh, that choice, I do think that storytelling has a way of being sometimes, you know, hard to really get the whole story out if you don't have a perspective on how it actually benefits everyone. So for me, I think there's an opportunity always to think about the benefits to challenges that people may face once a business makes a decision that is good for the business and also good for the customer. We wish I had more time. Go follow her for more. Badass Boz, as she's known. But Bozma St. John, we thank you so much for spending some time with us. The Urgent Life, her new memoir. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget, a lot to recap from this show and much more this week. And check out our podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. And there's a lot more to come from Caroline and I this week. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.